Hey everybody, I am back again with the Doomsday Duplicator team. I have Simon and Chad from last time, and we also have Oivind with us this time, and I just murdered the pronunciation of his name. I'm very, very sorry for that. I'm going to try my best, but very excited to revisit this chat with all of you and see what's been going on in the past five years it's been since we've talked. So long. So um, if you all wouldn't mind just giving a very quick uh, refresher course of what this is just very brief because I actually imagine most people listening are going to have already seen and heard the first one and they want to hear your updates but just for people who may not have you know give them the quick quick update version and if they want more details respectfully they can go back to the first one where we really dug into the work you've done up until that point so I can give a quick summary and then Chad can kind of jump in I guess Chad and I count as the original project members and then we'll we'll explain Odvin's uh, involvement a little bit more in detail. But um, it, it's really two projects that are working together. Um, originally, I was the founder of a project called Doomsday 86. And the idea of Doomsday 86, it was based around the, the, the restoration and pre preservation, if you like, of a English computer system from 1986, which was like a historical record of the entire country. But it was produced on a couple of very specific laser discs that only played in a very specific player on a very specific system. So it, it was a problem. And as part of that problem domain, if you like, I went searching for a way to back up laser discs. And uh, along with my project partner, Ian, um, in the UK, we, we found Chad's project, which was LD Decode, Decode, I should say. And LD Decode at the time was, uh, I think prototype is probably a fair way of saying it, Chad. I mean, it was, it was pretty early doors. Um, but the problem there was that, well, we had a shared problem. I, I had the problem that I needed a way to make high-quality backups of laser discs, and Chad needed a high-quality backup of a laser disc in order to, to make LD Decode work. And the only way to kind of prove that you have a high-quality copy of something is to run it through the entire kind of round trip, if you like. It needs to be preserved and then converted back to kind of prove that you've got a preserved copy. So... Chad and I had a common problem that, that basically we then started working together to produce what I what I called the Doomsday Duplicator. Obviously, coming from my perspective of, of the Doomsday Project, I wanted to selfishly just duplicate two laser discs. <laughs> Chad and the rest of the world had other ideas on what they wanted to duplicate. I mean, it, it's crazy these days with anime and all sorts of different types of training discs we found. And I mean, it's it's universal. But really, the, the spark was that. And, and then I came in and I developed a piece of hardware which solved the, the initial issue of how do you capture a laser disk in, in a high enough quality that Chad's magical mathematics can then kind of do its thing. So I'll let Chad now sort of say a little bit about LD Decode and, and, and the problems that it's solving. Wow. I was just looking at the change logs and I realized how much of it's come in in the last five years. <laughs> I was like, oh, I don't have that much talk. Oh, I do. <laughs> but basically, you can take pretty much any decent Laserdisc player that's well calibrated, plug it into this, and with a lot of work, you can get some nice-looking Laserdisc captures, and you get to bypass all the analog electronics that were tested against in a tube TV, that make decisions that don't really make any sense when you've got a 4K monitor in front of you. Mm. 
like things Dude. like edge enhancement to, to oversimplify then for for anybody who's catching up and i know this is basically just an insult but i don't mean it this way to oversimplify you're taking the data that was extracted and turning it into actual video image and audio as well but in a way where you try to extract the best quality out of it and you're constantly yeah. improving your methods of getting it so i remember from the last interview you said that once you have ripped that laser disc in its uh you know raw form which is like almost eight terabytes or five terabytes depending on the the length or mm. it was pretty big last time uh then the ld decode will take that and make it into a video file but even if you if you have LD decode version one versus version whatever you're up to now, you could just rerun that on the original file and get even better because of all your updates. Yeah. So I remembered that correctly, right? Yeah. Like yeah. Our, our capture it. from 2018, 2019 will work just fine with the new software. So to kind of, um, I mean, give you a, a, a high level description of kind of the, the process flow that we go through, just, just for the benefit of the audience, if you like. Well, I'll try not to be too geeky and nerdy about this but it is in my name all geeks and nerds listening it's appreciative <laughs> if you if you take a laser disc the interesting thing about a laser disc is that unlike cds it's an analog medium so it's an optical analog medium so if you take a laser disc and imagine that it has a spiral of data on it and that spiral of data is, and correct me if I'm wrong, Chad, it's about 14 kilometers of something of length. like that yeah if you stretch it out end to end what we're doing is we're using a laser disc player to track that track so that the laser disc is tracking it and spinning it. And that's what makes the process cheap because we can use something that's already there. And then what we do is we plug into the back of the laser and we read from it what the laser is doing. So as the laser drops in and out of the pits on the disc, what comes out of the laser is, is a sine wave. And the system, the doomsday duplicator, 40 million times a second is capturing that sine wave. But that sine wave is not video. It's not, it's not a PAL image or an NTSC image. It's, it's what's on the laser disc. Just in the same way that on a CD, there is an audio, there's EFM. So you have kind of an encoding format. So in, in a laser disc, it's a, you have sound, uh, you can have digital data, you have video, and they modulate those things together. So you end up with this kind of modulated FM signal coming off the back of the laser. We capture that. And then, the magic of Chad software is doing multiple different things. So first of all, you have to pull all those different modulated parts apart so that you get the individual bits, the sound, the data, and the video into separate sections, which we do digitally uh, without making any loss. And then once you've done that, the problem with the physical disk is the disk is kind of spinning around and it's, it's slowing down, it's speeding up, it's vibrating up and down, it's doing lots of things that are, are less than optimal, let's put it that way, they're, they're awful basically. So, I mean, the environment is, is quite noisy in itself. So because the disk isn't constantly rotating, you have a problem in the fact that the timing comes out. So if you look at the image, it would actually be sort of wavering all over the place as, as the disk jitters and moves. And the, the, the issue with that is that a laser disk player would have a restriction that it would need to do that in real time. It has to correct all of that stuff and get it through to the end of the process and produce a picture as fast as the picture is moving, like 25 frames a second or 30 in the case of NTSC. So we were able to kind of, we, we made an early decision in the project that our aim was not speed, our aim was quality. So it didn't matter if it took the system three days to decode 10 minutes of video, we didn't care. What was really important was that when we did this time-based correction, as it's called, to get rid of all this jitter, it was as accurate as possible. And because we were using 
Because we took an image of the disk, you can throw the image of that disk through the process as many times as you like. The, the original image never degrades once you've captured it. So it basically means we're able to capture test disks to begin with, the GGV disk from, um, from Pioneer, which are just test signals. I mean, they're, they're, they're not the most compelling viewing <laughs> when you watch watching TV. It's not Netflix. But what it means is that we have a known input that we're, we're trying to get the output to match it as much as possible. So the great thing was is that over the, the years, I mean, I, I remember Chad and I dancing around our virtual rooms, you know, when we got one test card with bad color and it was kind of leaning to one side, but at least it looked like a picture. And now from the project, we can get really advanced. I mean, we have like the PAL transform decoders running, which just, they, they reproduce the original imagery so much better than a laser disc ever could do. And it was really important for me from the Doomsday perspective, because on the Doomsday, they were PAL laser discs. And laser discs kind of up until the mid 80s, there was PAL laser discs, and then there weren't basically. But the NTS discs, they continued to be developed, the players continued to be developed. So NTSC discs were, or NTSC players were a much higher quality. But actually, technically, PAL is a slightly better picture quality. I, I'm probably going to get killed online for saying that, but <laughs> PAL, PAL is pretty and lovely, and NTSC is never the same colors. We know this. So what we were able to do in the process was actually then produce PAL imagery that was, was better than any PAL player ever produced. I mean, like we can produce the original, the images from the original Doomsday laser discs better than any player was ever able to do it on the planet, bar none. And actually, Shortly after that, we kind of caught up with the NTSC side of things now as well. So I would argue the, the output from LD to code is so good, it outperforms any LaserDisc player on the planet because the, the LaserDisc player is completely in software now. And that's including, really... Including... Um, so just to, including if the player that you're using to rip it isn't even the highest quality player because you're not actually using the circuitry on it that plays the laser disc. You're really just using the laser and the circuits that cause the disc to spin in the correct speed, correct? Yeah, yeah. so it, it, it's a game of diminishing returns really because if you have one of these high-end uh, pioneer players that cost a billion yen to buy and you don't know how to calibrate it, clean it and make it work properly, my $10 laser disc player that I've calibrated will outperform it hands down. So it really is a case of like how well the LaserDisc player performs in the first place. And then, then what that means is that we, we kind of picked a industrial player that was produced quite late uh, up until about the year 2000 and was quite easy to work with. And part of the project was me sitting down for, I don't know, about a year and a half and learning how to repair and calibrate LaserDisc players to bring them back to factory spec. So a factory spec reference player, one of our LDV 4300s, if it's calibrated, it will outperform anything. I mean, unless you've calibrated the player, you will not get as good a picture from it. And if you can get a good picture from the player, what you get out of LD Decode is even better because the, the player's electronics are not in the way. So what we actually can do is that we can, instead of guessing about how good a player is, we have this thing called science. So instead of all this nonsense about people, you know, if you rest a rock on the top of your audio cables, you know, the sound gets better. And, oh, if, if we just got like half a frame less and blah, 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 what we can do is put a test disk in, run it through the player, and from the LD decode output, analyze that back into signal-to-noise ratio graphs, into dropout graphs. We can actually see whether your player is better than my player. And we can actually see as we run through different disks, we can compare 
two identical discs to each other and see which disc is the better quality. So that, that was kind of the, the beginnings of the magic. But then we got an additional piece of kind of Harry Potter going on, which is a, a process called stacking. So once you get a disc and you make a copy of it and you run it through Chad's time-based correction so that everything is lined up, you know where the, it's the start and end of every line is. So if you then take another disc that has the same program on it, the same mastering, basically, you run that through the TBC. What you can then do is you can take both of those and overlay them over each other and have a look at how they compare. So we can actually take up to 64 copies of the same laser disc and average them together. We can error correct them by comparing them, like, like a, just voting between them to see what should be there and what shouldn't be there. So we can spot when errors have occurred on the disk, and we can change. We can spot when that was actually an error in the mastering. And then for each one of these different disks we've got, we can average them together or medium them together and work out what the original color dot should be. So instead of doing error kind of um, error concealment, which is what a laser disk player does, if it, there's a dropout, it will cover it over. We can actually take the information from 64 disks and add it together. We get more information. And that means that we can gradually work back to the quality of the master that was used to make the laser disc. And if you put those two things together, it, it blows the pants off of anything that came before it. I mean, it's just, it's not possible to do what we do any other way. And I, I think that's, I, I'm kind of, I, I keep saying time-based correction, but actually the, the thing that would, if I was to write something on Chad's gravestone, it would be, thank you for the time-based corrector. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. It's actually, it's actually the thing that also goes, so kind of segues into what uh, Irvin is, is doing as well, because that time-based correction technology and the, and the FFT technology is not just applicable to LaserDisc. It's applicable to any recorded media that has jitter or motion in it, like video cassettes, for example. So there, there's a lot of commonality. Once you've got to the time-based correction point, everything after that in the chain is pretty much the same, no matter what media you're, you're originally using. And that's where the kind of commonality comes with the, with the different projects. I realize I've been talking quite a lot now. So <laughs> I don't know, Chad, Chad I'll give you an opportunity to, to, to say what you want to say about this. I mean, that was just kind of trying to give you a feeling for what we've, we've been doing. Yeah, it's I don't have too much to add, except now we mostly decode the digital data too, which ironically is an actual CD. It's encoded just like a CD. The protocols are the same. It's not CD quality audio. It's CD audio. Hmm. Yeah. Have you found many disks with that stuff embedded on there? I know you've worked on the um, some of the LaserDisc-based video games as well, and some, uh, you know, the the original project. But do you find a lot of discs with digital data on it? Yeah, not too many have digital data, but some like LDG that side codes that I haven't processed yet. I forget if that's been processed. I'm probably going to rework the CD stuff in my time scale relatively soon, which will be sometime between now and the end of next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, but that's mostly digital audio then. Yeah, five point one audio tracks or stuff no, like that. Two point oh, Digital audio is digital data. It's just how you interpret it at the end. I mean, the the interesting thing is that the the original VP four one five players used in Doomsday. There's a, there's a, it's a small universe that we're living in here. So the original VP four one five was developed by Philips in in Holland. And at the same time in their R&D, they were developing this little technology that would be known as CD-ROM. So 
the type of encoding that they were doing. They, they were building ICs to do the real-time decoding of EFM, a, a type of digital modulation or an analog modulation that produces the digital data. And the EFM chips that they had at the time in prototype were actually used in the VP415. So the very first disk to, to commercially feature digital data was, in fact, Doomsday. And it used the same standard as CDs because Philips were developing it, and they were the ones that developed CDs as well. So what happened was is that they basically put analog information onto the disk that was EFM encoding um, that could then be converted back into digital data in the case of, of Doomsday. But when it came to the NTSC disks and films and those sorts of things, it was actually digital audio that was on there. And there's, there's some flags in each frame of the disk that tell you how to interpret the digital data, whether it's audio, and it can actually be not just stereo audio, but you can have bimono audio as well, where you have French on one channel and, and German on another and those sorts of things, because it was being used for educational systems and training systems, remember. So there was a, like this dual channel audio. You could do that in the, uh, on the analog audio. You could also do it in the digital audio. But there was a lot of there's a lot of the commonality between the way CDs work. CDs just have the digital EFM data written down on the disk, so you you can read it like digital data. You can recover the clock and you can convert that into audio if you want to. But the EFM decoders that that are in LD Decode will work with CDs too. If you drop a CD into a, a laserdisc player that can play CDs and pull the the um, EFM from it you can actually convert that back into sound using LD Decode. We, we, we did it embarrassingly with some share tracks, but, you know, yeah. you, you have to use something <laughs> as a demo. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, I believe in the last also... interview you used the skipping, disc skipping as a way to demonstrate that or to explain that where anybody that has disc skips or pops or clicks on it when you're listening to CDs, that's because the player doesn't know what to do with the potentially damaged area, but because you're not playing it, you're reading it and then you know, but rebuilding it after the fact, you're able to uh, recover CDs that might not play properly, but all the data could possibly still be there, correct? Yeah, and you, you could also stack them as well. So if you had more than one copy of the CD, you could work out what was what was in error. So, I mean, the potential for CDs is, is more, but it, it has to be said that the because CDs are by default a digital media, I mean, the, the information is digital, it's much easier to pull that out. You, you don't have to go to the, the lengths that we do with LD Decode and Doomsday Duplicator. But there are reasons why you might want to do it, especially when it comes to copy protection and those sorts of things, if you want an accurate copy of the disk. Because the Doomsday Duplicator process, doesn't it doesn't fix anything. It, it will pull the disk and it will take scratches and everything. I mean, you, what you end up with is, is kind of an optical image of the disk that you put in there. Um, which is unlike other processes, because if you if you take a copy of a CD using a, a CD player, for example, you, you'll get a copy of the audio data or a copy of the data, but that's not actually what's on the CD in the same way that there's no video on a Laserdisc. It, it's, it's, you know, combined with the other signals. So, I mean, it, it's less... It's a more expensive route to take with less gains on CDs, where with, with Laserdisc, because it's an analog media you have no choice. You, you have to do things to hardware if you want to do it right. Um, so, and I think that's why we ended up with a much more kind of like all-encompassing system because we had to, we had no choice. <laughs> it was difficult because it was difficult. That's just the way it was for us. Yeah, when we get so, all the um, bugs out of the CD decoding, the advantage will be 
when you have a CD decode and there are no errors, you know, mathematically, that's the digital data on the disk, which it's hard to always be sure with a CD-ROM. I mean, there are people who worked it out, but they have their own hoops. And also, we do have AC3 decoding for some NTSC disks, later ones. It's not perfected yet because there are still filtering issues with the digital audio I need to work on. But we're making good progress on that. Hmm. So um, I, I guess that's a perfect... Uh, you know that that's a perfect bringing up everybody up to speed from the last one um the laser disc project is still going there's still progress being made but you've also been moving on to vhs tapes and that's what's gotten quite a lot of people excited because while preservation of laser disc is an important thing um the percentage of people who have vhs tapes that are super important to them are far higher exponentially higher I can't tell you how many times people have reached out to me, you know, nerd friends or friends that know that I'm a nerd saying like, hey, you know, this is the only video I have of my deceased mom. Can you make sure to get a good copy of this? And oh, by the way, don't break the tape while you're doing it because it's my only copy. You know, I've been in that situation before and it's always been um, a quest to get the best version. And I've even been revisiting that lately for 2023 because it, you know, what's available to you, the tools that are available to you are constantly changing, sometimes for the better, sometimes not. Sometimes you have to find older equipment and older capture cards that could end up dealing with this. But as you were explaining before, Simon, there's no possible way that you could get as good of a recording if you just hit play on a VHS player than you would using methods just the same way with Laserdisc. So, um, you know, maybe uh, now we could kind of switch over to talk about the status of that, how that all works, and now we could drag Oiv into the conversation as well. <laughs> I think we can hop straight over to Ovin, actually, if you, if you want to comment, Ovin. I mean, you're, you're the one that's at the spearhead of the, the video side of things. Yeah, thanks. Um, yeah, so for me, it's kind of uh, started, basically, I... I... Um, and many years ago, I, I, I studied uh, computer science and I started getting a bunch of health issues. So I kind of dropped out before finishing it completely. And some years ago, I was still working out some things and I was desperately looking for some work I could do part time. And I ended up uh, in some local business that was dealing with... Uh, digitizing VHS tapes and other things. So that kind of got me into the whole digitizing kind of game. And and, and as someone already in, do, um, within computer science, I kind of felt that the whole, there was, there, there, if, if it, I felt like there was kind of a lack of, of tools to, to really do this properly. Like the, you, people were really relying on on really ancient devices and capture cards and uh, and, and you need like like uh, yeah you the ancient devices the capture cards the codecs the software that you have to use it's all 
very convoluted and it's really hard. And you would think, oh, as time goes by, all of these new capture cards are going to be doing 480i perfectly, right? Because it's been around forever, but it's the opposite. Even my Avermedia Live Gamer 4K, one of the things that we found out in the live stream was it was detecting a 480i image, but it was automatically deinterlacing it and not, not bad, but not the best way. So that's kind of why a lot of people are really rushing to this, because in order for you to capture 480i now, you need a capture card that can do it. You need a good one, which I've in that live stream found out that the capture card that I digitized all of my old family's tapes on 10 years ago, 20 plus hours worth of work, wasn't great at all. <laughs> so you need the capture card, but then you also need the ability to capture in 480i. Uh, and that alone has been so much harder than I expected. And, you know, just to politely cut the trolls off of the pass. Yes, I know you could use OBS to deinterlace. That's not what we're doing. We want to have an archival copy in 480i so that later on we could use whatever methods or whatever craziness people come up with to change that image, but still have the original. So every couple of years, run it through another AI processor. So yeah, I, I completely feel your pain when you talk about um, capture equipment and the trouble that everybody will run into trying to digitize 480i stuff today. Uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it goes back to the talk about uh, time-based correction that we got into. Like, pretty much no capture card does really does that uh, properly. Uh, like, uh, unless the tape is like really. It, unless it's like a good commercial recording, you're, you're gonna get unstable wiggly images, and if it, especially if it's a camcorder or something running around, it's you, you you get end up with just image jumping around, and and many capture capture cards just can't handle that properly, hmm. and you would think that like in ten years, twenty years, things would have improved, but they really don't, even though these things are like sold as archiving devices uh so you have to hunt down like 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 for the more commercial capture route we, we end up using this uh 20 year old dvd recorders to stabilize things and it's <laughs> they're, they're getting old as well and it's impractical and they're not really that practical to use and and, and they have their own side so so, yeah, that's funny. That's the conclusion I came to in the part one stream. It's going to be at least three parts is that the most uh, the highest quality 480 copy I got messing around with a bunch of equipment was going from a good quality VHS player that has S video out into a DVD recorder that has a time based corrector built in and a good 3D comb filter uh, running with the S video input. And the easiest was the combo units where you just hit play on the VHS tape and record on the DVD. But that wasn't the one that I had wasn't the best quality. I've since bought a Samsung one. Because the ease of use, I think most people would probably, who want to do this themselves, would say, wait, you press two buttons, and then when you're done, you hit finalize disk. Yeah, that's that's what I want to do. That's easy. But you're right. The, the best methods are old DVD recorders that aren't going to be functioning properly forever. So, yeah. I think it's it's also important to remember that with the... The, the, the process that VHS decode is using to capture is similar to the way we're doing laser discs. So the tap is into the RF coming off the video head. So in, in this case, again, we're not capturing 480i. We're not, we're not capturing TV, really. We're capturing the magnetic imagery. The, 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 I, I don't remember the name for it, but the, the actual magnetic signals that are on the tape itself at the source. 
So if you have a well-calibrated um, VHS player that, that has decent power supply, what you're getting is a clean copy or the cleanest copy you can of the tape. And that means, again, that when you run it through all this process, as you once you've captured it, you've captured that tape. You don't need the tape to work again. Uh, effectively, if it's a one-pass thing, like we, we know from projects like Kaleidoscope in the UK, you know, they, they, they bake the tapes to try to get rid of the moisture and the mold, and then they run them. And sometimes, you know, the, the ferrous material falls off the tape when it gets played. You have one chance to capture it. So you don't want to capture it by running it into a, a TV picture. You want to capture the magnetic flux. Um, that's the word I was looking for, the flux that's on the actual tape itself. And once you've got that, you've got it. So, I mean, it, it's a little bit more difficult to do the the, the magic that we do with um, some of the LD decode stuff because the clock speeds and the bandwidth, if you like, in, in, in LaserDisc are a little bit wider. But exactly the same um, thing applies to tapes. I mean, if you can if you can capture once and process many, that that's really what what's in there. But there's a lot of special things. I mean, just like on the front end of capturing laserdisc, there's quite a lot of special things to do with laserdisc. I think where an Irvin has really pushed the project forward is changing that front end to a tape media specific. And you, I'll let you talk about this, Irvin. But I mean, it's more than just VHS that that you can handle in the fork now, right? Yeah, we've. Uh, we have a bunch of different things like like you're talking with baking that's not so much vhs but it's more uh pneumatic specifically and an older open reel formats uh which uh yeah the older tape formats which were really subject to the to the tape so uh, we're, we're, we're not recommending people throw their wedding videos in the oven just yet <laughs> <laughs> yeah because those things you yeah some of those uh some of those uh, tape stocks really had have problems with falling apart, so you only really have like one or two chances. Uh, and also, some of not so much with pneumatic, maybe, but some some of those old formats as well, like especially with the more uh, but uh, consumer oriented ones, like you have Philips VCR and and uh, it's called E E I A J, like the old open reel things that's all consumers you 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 had the, basically the newest players are from the 1970s so so you really don't have any good players for it so 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 something so the software decoding can just do a so much better job than anything uh, uh, 1970s electronics can do i mean every uh, with vhs players you have at them at least going into the 2000s even though they're they kind of skimped on improving them after the mid 90s but yeah hmm. uh, and but yeah uh, and also going back to the time-based correction as well like even that you you only got it in some high-end players in the in the mid 90s and anything after that was really just uh because then like High-end video was all DVDs, so uh, VHS was just an afterthought. Yeah, no, that's that's true. Um, so when you're when you're doing these and when you're building this uh, into a VHS player, is it like Laserdisc in that you're essentially using the power supply, the spools to spin the tape, um, and you don't? So the fact that it might not have S video output or something like that doesn't really matter. Um, and you know what does 
what do you look for in a VHS player to start this project to make sure it's good enough? And I guess, are there better and worse? Or like, do you have like a median standard that you use for when you do this? I mean, the outputs doesn't, don't really matter that much. Just uh, with LaserDisc, we, we sort of connect to some uh, test, like nearly all VHS players have a, a, a test point somewhere that uh, you, you get access to the, the the FM signal out from the head amplifier that amplifies the signal from the video heads. So we connect uh, that to that signal uh, to to either the we, you can either use the the Domesday duplicator like with laser discs or or many people use this uh, cheaper option which is to use a uh, modif basically um, we use a, a modified uh, capture card sort of hmm. this is um, older PCI capture cards which someone managed to modify the driver to capture raw signals with uh, which so you can basically use a 10 20 dollar capture card to capture hmm. raw stuff with which is pretty neat and with the capture card method, does that capture it directly onto the PC that the capture card's installed in, or is there like a separate thing that you use in order to do that? No, it's it's in it. It goes directly to the PC, although, although it doesn't do it as well as the don't say duplicator. So, so uh, and it, you need to sort of do some mods and maybe use an amplifier to get a good result with it. But it's a lot cheaper than using a hmm. full. Doomsday duplicator. We should have mentioned before, I, I briefly touched upon it, but the Doomsday duplicator is using a, an FPGA based dev kit, kind of like the one that's used for the Mr. FPGA project, but not the same one. I made that mistake on a podcast once talking about it. <laughs> and then you plug in a hard drive to it. And it doesn't have to be some crazy NVMe hard drive. You could use a mechanical drive. But, but wait, wait, you don't plug in a hard you, you plug it into computer. Yeah, so my USB. The, the, the Doomsday Duplicator is basically a, a sandwich. Actually, I, I have one right here, so I can, I can hold it up to the camera. So it, it, it looks like this. You can actually see it's, it's three boards joined together. And the reason for that was to make it cheaper for me to develop. So the bottom board here is a DE0 Nano. That's an FPGA that has some RAM on board. It's basically for development. The top board is a USB 3 development board from Cypress. So that is the throughput to the computer. And then in the middle, uh, with this nice BNC connector, is a bit that I developed, which is the, the, the ADC itself, the analog to digital converter. So what actually happens is that when, when, when you're capturing at really, really high speed, you, you have, to, well, uh, let me try to put this in a less technical way. You have two different environments with computers. You have real-time computing, which is like FPGAs and um, microcontrollers, and you have non-real-time environments like Linux machines. So Linux machines are really generally very, very fast, like Windows and, and Mac. But the problem is every now and again, your Windows box will decide to go away and defragment the hard drive without telling you. So whilst they're very, very fast, they don't have deterministic processing. They, they sometimes don't do the right thing. So when you're capturing a 40 million sample per second at 10 bits, you're capturing a lot of data. And if you lose one bit of that data, you're done. So you have to be able to, with a high degree of probability, because this is mathematics, with a high degree of probability, capture a tape or a disk over about one hour. So what's actually what the problem this is actually solving is first of all, you have to you have to treat the inbound signal and capture it. So 
you, you have to get it into a very low noise stage where you amplify it just enough, you feed it into the ADC and you convert it into digital data without generating additional noise because adding in noise is, is bad, obviously. So this little capture card has a 40 million sample per second capture on it and then it has some other power trickery and, and line driving trickery that stops noise from the FPGA and the other processing board from interfering with the analog stage. But then you've got a constant stream of 40 million samples per second coming out of this, which is a lot. And that gets fed into the FPGA because if you try to feed that into a computer, it will be good right up until the computer goes away and defragments its hard drive <laughs> and then suddenly doesn't react fast enough and you can't catch up because it's not a real-time environment. So the FPGA provides a very, very high-speed buffer that allows you to kind of soak up the, the, the differences as it goes across the USB into the computer. And of course, if you can soak that up a little bit, your next problem is how do I transfer that amount of data into a computer? And the answer is USB 3 because USB 2 is not fast enough. So USB 3 is necessary to get that kind of five gigs of bandwidth. And that's pretty much what the board's doing. Capture, buffer, transmit. And once you've done that, what you then have on the other side of it and on Linux or Windows or whatever you're using is something that is capturing that information in real time and dropping it down to a hard drive on the PC. So all the different parts of it are involved. Everything has to work. So you don't want to have a PC that's too slow and you don't want to have a PC that has too slow drives. So if you have like a striped RAID, for example, you can do it onto mechanical drives, but for better probability, and it is probability, it's better to use an SSD drive because obviously the, the write speeds are faster. So it hey, is- Just to interrupt you for one quick second, yeah, to be perfect. clear, when you say SSD, you're just simply talking about SSDs that run at you know, three to 500 megs a second or higher, yeah. not the NVMe drives. Because when I started doing 4K60 capture, if you're not using the highest speed drives, you cannot do it in 444 on compressed sure. No, you just any, anything a little bit faster. If you've got something that's made of rust and spinning around, then anything solid state is going to run fast enough in comparison. Yeah. So some hard drives will, but the trouble with the trouble with physical spinning rust hard drives is that they have a nasty tendency to kind of like, depending on what you're doing, give you different response speeds. Where SSDs in general, solid state storage devices tend to be a little bit more predictable. So it, it's just really, when we started, I mean, I remember Chad and I having lots of problems with bad USB 3 chipsets on, on systems and you know, all sorts of variants. As soon as, we, as soon as we tried to move away from my high-end development system, which of course was, you know, <laughs> I'd kitted it out pretty good in, in just so that I could achieve something. And then other people started running it on the laptop they inherited from their grandma. You know, we, we ended up with, with different problems. So nowadays, it's much less of a problem. A pretty average PC with pretty average drives will do the trick. Um, the faster it is, I mean, LD Decode is, um, it's a little processor intensive to say the least. <laughs> I'm being really nice. You, you, you need a Sherman tank of a processor if you want to do it fast, basically. So, right, but LD Decode, just to clarify, that's after the capture is done. Yes, yes. Then you just leave that on your computer. And if it takes four hours or four days, it makes no difference because it's already it's, been ripped to your hard drive. Yeah, very, very true. But the, the problem is most people only have one laptop. So, I mean, the, 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 the domain is really, when, when we look at the problem of, of what's required to do it, it's generally people working with one computer doing things end to end. I mean, some of us, like myself, are lucky enough to have kind of virtual machines running in a, in a little rack. And that means that once I've captured things, 
I can transfer them over to my RAID and then I can let a virtual machine just, you know, chomp on it for days and it doesn't bother me. But right. we have to, if you want to have a, a project which has a wide attraction, I mean, if you want to get all the VHS guys involved and those sorts of things, you, you have to kind of think outside your own little universe for a little while. We, we want it to be as, as universal as possible. So, I mean, to begin with, we were mostly concerned with quality. Once the quality was right, I know that, that Chad has done a lot of work, and I'll let him talk about this himself, but to speed up LD Decode. But for the, for the initial capture, you just need something that can get the data off the, the Doomsday Duplicator through the USB and onto a drive fast enough. And right. that's, these days, it's a pretty average computer that you need to do that. Well, let's stick with the capture part first and Chad strap in. I'm going to have a lot of questions for you afterwards, <laughs> okay. but, um, and just one, uh, kind of just pause for a minute. The, um, uh, what you just showed the doomsday hardware on the DE one, yeah. is that the same exact piece of hardware for VHS as it would be for Laserdisc? Could you use one for both and just transfer them or does it have to be internally installed? It, it's basically, it's a, it's a USB three device. So the, the, you don't install it in anything. You don't have to put it in your machine. You plug a USB three cable into it and it's a USB. No, I mean in the player itself, not in your computer. Well, in, in the player, what you're doing is you're tapping into the RF signal. So it, it's a little different in a laser player because the RF comes from a laser and in a VHS player, for example, it comes from the head. But effectively, RF is RF. It, it is a high-frequency signal that's wobbling all over the place, not, not to use too, too much science about it. But, I mean, you, you've got a big wobbly signal that's moving at a certain speed, and that speed is generally represented in terms of bandwidth. And actually, for a VHS player, the bandwidth, the amount of information, because it's, it's not data, it's analog, the amount of information that you can have is less. The bandwidth is lower in a VHS. So if you can capture a laser disc, you can capture a VHS player. And that's why you can use um, technique, well, boards like Ovid um, like was talking about, where, where you can actually then use these slightly cheaper boards. But the, the Doomsday Duplicator was purpose designed to do just one thing, and that is capture RF information at speed, at accurate, you know, with a great deal of accuracy, with an extremely low noise floor. So the same piece of equipment you can tap into a, to a player. I mean, the, the, the head inside a VHS player spinning around reading things, there's a little amplifier, and then after that amplifier, you can hook onto a test point, and from that test point, you will get the wobbly signal that's recorded on, on, in the magnetic flux, if you like. So when you're physically uh, installing this, would the procedure be to use a well-shielded, obviously, cable to hit that test point and then run that cable out the back of your VCR and then you could connect it externally? That's exactly what it is. So in, in the LaserDisc players, we actually we put a BNC um, connector on the back of the player. So we have a, a short 20-centimeter run at most um, coaxial cable um, that connects to a BNC and then you lock that on. And it is impedance matched with the Doomsday Duplicator. So this is <laughs> going a bit technical. But the no, case, this, is the, this yeah. is the info we're definitely going to yeah. want to need. So you, so keep going. you basically, you, you have, it, it, it's an, a 50 ohm impedance that you have on the on the Doomsday Duplicator. It's a 50 ohm impedance that you get from the test point that you hook onto. So your cables, your BNC plugs, everything has to be 50 ohms. And it's, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I mean, it's pretty much the same procedure for VHS as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's basically what. If you want to fully modify a player, it's a similar procedure. Yeah. Although I, I don't think the test points are strictly fifty ohms, but uh... <laughs> sure. 
Um, and when you're modifying these players, so Laserdisc, VHS, do they still actually uh, operate as players or does that remove the functionality when you tap into yeah, it? It makes no difference to them at all. I mean, effectively, what you're doing is extending a test header. And if there's nothing connected to that test header, it has no effect. But actually, with Laserdisc players, I, I mean, I don't play with VHS players very much, just Laserdisc players. Um, with It makes no difference. You, you can capture whilst watching the output from a Laserdisc player. The, the the interesting thing is that if you happen to be in, in uh, I don't know, the, the, the land of NTSC rather than the land of fairies of PAL, <laughs> then and you can't get hold of a PAL player and you want to capture a PAL disc, then you can actually, with a few players, you can put them in service mode and they will play a PAL disc, even though they have no capability of displaying the video that comes from it. And if you have a Doomsday Duplicator attached, it doesn't care what the player can and cannot do which is why you can use a bog standard player to capture these special um, doomsday disks, because who cares what the electronics are after the, the, the laser. So you, you can actually trick the player into playing a PAL disk because a PAL disk will rotate at a different speed. But most laser disk players can do it. They just lack all the PAL decoding hardware. So, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what's after the test point um, to the duplicator. So you can make players do more. Yeah, on my V2800, I can play digital discs, kind of. It's not great, but it requires the digital EFM to sync to, otherwise it veers off after a couple minutes and can't lose a sync. Hmm. So on the laser disc side, um, the power supply needs to be in good condition, the laser needs to be in good condition, and any of the circuitry around it, the capacitors on the board that drive the laser and the mechanisms should be good so you don't have anything... But so essentially, you just need a refurbished player. Is that correct? Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is, is that the, these players are old. It's the same with all of these things. The older they get, the, the, you know, they came out of the factory 25, 30, 35 years ago, in the case of the, the VP415s, and they've been hammered, they've been bashed, they've been shipped, they've been kicked. School children have played with them. Adults have played with them. People have put sandwiches in them. You know, it's like you you have a, a physical thing that's spinning around at high speed or playing tapes. I mean, they collect dust, they collect dirt, and also the parts gradually wear and the, the tolerances gradually move apart, and you know the capacitors dry out, and eventually you end up with a player that isn't as good as it was at the factory. In fact, they're considerably worse. So. What we, we were able to do, I mean, I mentioned earlier about the fact that with, with the LD decode, you're able to use it to see how well calibrated the player is. So a good example is that, I, I mean, everyone says recap your power supply. It makes things better, right? Okay, but it's pretty much a, my mate Fred down the pub told me this. <laughs> right. So what we actually did is I, I took a, an LDV4300 that didn't have a recapped power supply, captured a disc on it, and then I um, recapped the power supply, recalibrated the player, and tried again. And I got a half dB improvement in signal-to-noise ratio. So I know it helps. So on, on the Doomsday 86 website, actually it's in the Doomsday Duplicator Wiki, there's all of the instructions on how I went through like our reference player and performed all the calibration points, including videos and instructions. And the, the trouble with that was that I did used an LDV 4300 um, because I'm at the start of the project, I think I bought four of them for about 200 um, pounds UK. And now they sell at about a thousand pounds each on, on eBay because everybody knows that's the one you can get all the instructions for. So <laughs> I single handedly <laughs> destroyed, destroyed the marketplace for them. But it, 
The difference is, of course, is that you, you, you can't just buy a player and expect it to work because quite a lot of the time I pop the top off a player, I look at the lens under a microscope and the lens has scratches. And mm. then I take the optical assembly out and I throw it in the bin. And then, I, I mean, if I'm doing it for a, a preservation quality player, then I, I, there's no exception. The, the lens has to be perfect. So right. the first step is you, you physically have to have a good lens. And, of course, the other problem is, is that just because I calibrated it and made it good, six months later, a piece of dirt could smash into the lens. So we have had players that, that you know, they were great and then they suddenly weren't. So you have to constantly recheck your players as well at least once every year if you're doing preservation stuff. But is that a complicated process? It, it, yeah, I mean, checking it, no. Repairing it, yes. <laughs> it's like, I mean, and, unless you happen to have quite a bit of test equipment and, you know, the, the professional knowledge on how to repair the electronics in, in laser displays, it's a bit more involved than just, you know, twiddling a few knobs and, and looking on an oscilloscope. I mean, so I, I don't think that's something for everybody. I mean, I, I just happen to be lucky and I have some electronic skill and I have the a lab to do it in. But I mean, having said that, there are people out there now that are looking to do things like duplication as a service. So you can find someone nearby. I mean, you can use our Discord server to, to find some people that are nearby. If you're lucky, you'll find someone who's nice and friendly and does it for free. Or, you know, these things cost money and time, so it's understandable that people charge for it too. But once you have a copy of a disc, you have a copy of a disc in the same way that, you know, you, you don't, most most people have, here is my my VHS player of my wedding, uh, sorry, VHS tape of my wedding. Once you've got it captured, you don't need, you know, several thousand pounds worth or dollars worth of equipment. What's the point if you only have one disc? So I, I think what will happen is that the, the, the sort of domain of being able to duplicate things will remain quite a small group of people. The difference is some people will start to make a bit of money off of it. I mean, Irvin mentioned earlier on, there are companies out there that do uh, VHS tape capture, for example. I mean, there's you, a lot you, and most of them are just using the same low quality push two buttons players that I'm using. So, yeah. you know, I know there's going to be people listening to this. It's like, hey, I work at a place and we do a good job. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about the people that charge, you know, 50 bucks a tape to turn it into a DVD or something like that and use the same equipment that you could have bought for 50 bucks to do it. But um, but no, all that makes sense. Um, and I'm kind of curious, too, now on the VHS side of things, um, it's, you know, I don't know very much about laser disc players, but I do know a bit about VHS in that, you know, there's two head, four head, six head models there. You know, there's ones that... Um, were known as really good quality back in the day, but when you actually put them up against some other ones, they're, they're about the same. And so I'm really interested to see, like, what do you look for in a VHS player with all of the other caveats aside? If the capacitors are dried up, if the power supply sucks, then it doesn't matter if you have the quote unquote best. It needs to be in good condition. But what do you first look for in a player? And then how do you start going into things like the VHS version of calibrating the laser? Well, like for for, uh, for for using it with the VHS decode, uh, I guess it's we, we've found like some models that work or are easier to work with uh, and and such, and have practical mechanisms and and have or need less or more service. Like like uh, we found that uh, say the J newer JVC models. We know they're, they're popular 
to to cop cap for capturing normally, but the, the the output from the test point is kind of weak, so they don't work mm. too well with the with the VHS decode capturing in, in particular, unless you use like an extra amplifier. That's so, funny because so those are actually excellent for people who just want to pick one up to play on a good quality CRT or do basic yeah, yeah. capture with. Yeah. So so it's not always the same. And and there's also like if another consideration is, is if you wanna because VHS, unlike laser disc, on, on VHS you have uh, audio is not stored at the same place as uh, the video signal. So I mean, on VHS you have you have both you have sort of two two uh, audio stored in two places. So you have the original linear audio, which is on sort of the top edge of the tape, which is works basically in the same way as on uh, audio cassette and and reel to reel tapes. So it's just uh, like the raw audio signal. So uh, the quality of that is kind of bad, but it's pretty robust. Uh, and that's that's something that's on pretty much all that you you get that on all tapes and then later on they added hi-fi audio which is i don't know exactly how they managed it but it sort of recorded under the video signal in a way on the tape so they have sort of two extra heads on the drum that pick it up and record it so you sort of have if you want to um if you want to record all of those things, you sort of need uh, three different signals, record three different signals at the same time. So, um, unlike the video test point, uh, not all VCRs have a easily accessible test point for the the RF signal for the the audio output. So that's also a consideration. If you want right. to, I, I definitely want to talk about audio in a second, um, and I'm going to probably ask a bunch of bunch of questions about that. Yeah. But just to go back to um, to which VHS players are better or worse, does the two head, four head, six head thing mean anything when you're tapping the RF output like this, or is that? Uh, like yes, that? yes, that it does have an impact, like um, especially for PAL decks, maybe more than NTSC. Um, uh, so. So what the, the what the extra heads mean, like um, basically, when you rec it's 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 for especially for the, sorry, they they have two different sort of purposes on on the on the uh, One thing is to to uh, to record slower this sort of slow SLP and LP speed better, mm -hmm. and the other purpose is to uh, to give better output when you do like fast forward and pause modes so that that second thing isn't very important when you're capturing but uh, getting better um so getting better playback in uh, slp and ep modes is important if you're capturing tips in in those modes so uh, usually also but with some exceptions uh Models with hi-fi will also have foreheads. So, hmm. uh, and I'm sure the discussion on your Discord, if people want more details on to what specific yeah, yeah, that's, a, that's region, a lot of the discussion. For that. And also, in in the PAL region, you basically most models with two heads will only play SP tapes, but that's not the case for NTSC decks. So, so. Mm -hmm. 
Right, because NTSC does everything right by Simon. <laughs> no, 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 I, I, I don't know why, but it, it's, it's, it's just that uh, the, uh, the slow speeds were much more popular in, in the US than in Europe, for yeah. whatever reason. So, so we didn't get. Uh, although there, there are some, except there are some uh, two head decks that play the slow speeds there as well, and they're pretty crap. So. You don't okay. really want to do stuff. So finding the player for your region, I would, you know, go to the Discord, talk to other people there, see what yeah. they're using. Uh, but I want to step back to what you started to talk about. I just wanted to kind of end that so I didn't have to, to go back later. But um, audio was a discussion that's been happening since our first interview and in that most people are taking the audio just from the RCA outputs and resyncing it later because it's easier to do than to have multiple doomsday duplicators tapped into multiple test points to get that raw data. Is that correct? Well, yeah, generally. I mean, the, the, the linear audio track is just, I mean, that's just uh, linear audio with a, well, it's a, it has a slight emphasis filter, like it's a slight EQ on it. But so, so it's basically just like capturing a, a cassette tape so you don't need anything special. There's no point in capturing uh, anything special on that. But the hi-fi audio, uh, you can. There is a bit to gain from capturing the the raw signal. So so we were we have been looking into that as well. And and one one I mean one option to sort of not have not need to use two expensive dongles is. We're, we've been looking at using this uh, uh, soft SDR radio thingies to capture the signal since it doesn't need as much bandwidth as the video signal. But yeah, it's still a, it's still a bit of a pain to actually synchronize these things. So, so um, I, I, ideally, we audio. would. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. Well, you know, we are just for, I should have said this at the beginning. We are four people very far away in distance from each other. Yeah. I think <laughs> Simon and uh, even are probably the closest, and that's not even that close, all things considered. So there's a long delay. So I apologize. We keep yeah, sure. No, I'm not, I'm not that great at doing these interviews either. So, yeah. No, no. So it's, it's still, a, that's one of the pain points still to, to dealing with the audio audio capture because yeah we don't have a good way of syncing up of course there are there are some formats like video 8 and ntse betamax that did actually put uh audio in the same signal as video hmm. but uh, most video tapes don't do that so. I, I think it's it's worth saying. So, sorry to interrupt you. If there is an electronics engineer out there that's interested in this problem domain, I mean that loves VHS players. Because it, it's not me. I'm, I'm a laser disc guy. But I mean, the the design of the duplicator is open source. I mean, everything is open from from the hardware all the way through the software. It's GPL three software. That everything is is completely open. All the schematics, not. Nothing is kind of hidden. I mean, if you look at the design of the Doomsday Duplicator, everything about it from the mathematics to the design, everything is described on the wiki. When, you know, uh, everything is completely open. If someone enjoys this problem domain and wants to look at the problem of capturing multiple RF points with a synchronized ADC, then, you know, for the love of God, <laughs> put your hand up and come along. We'd, we'd, we'd love that. I mean, to... If you're even if you're not interested in laser displays, it, it's fine. But the problem is, as you know, for me, it's kind of a 
I don't have a big pile of uh, VHS players, funnily enough, because I don't really have any VHS cassettes. My interest was Laserdisc, and that's what I designed the hardware for. But there's nothing to stop someone from coming along and focusing on that particular part of the project if they want to improve it. It, it would help. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a familiar something that uh, it's a solvable issue. Like it's yeah. So just to separate though, hi-fi audio is not something that you would find for people's home movies, right? Well, no. I mean, it's it's uh, it's it's not something you 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 would need to have. You would have needed to buy a pretty expensive like camcorder at least if you were using a VHS camcorder to get hi-fi hi-fi audio. Um, although what you could have maybe gotten is if if you had a somewhat fancy VHS player and you were dubbing tapes on the VHS player at home you would like get the hi-fi audio on the on the dubs from okay. from whatever you're dubbing to yeah so i think while while the goal is always to chase the highest quality signal once so that you could process it later yeah. using md4a approved audio capture cards would probably be something that would get us 99% there. I'm not sure if you're all familiar with the MD4A project, but if you're not, you, you're, you'll all definitely be interested in it. It's basically a way to, it started out as a way my friend Artemio wrote it, who um, he wanted to make sure that video game emulation was accurate to sound as well as video and latency. And it was all subjective up to that point. A bunch of super smart people working on it, but he actually created a tool that allows you to analyze the audio signals down to a level way uh, deeper than the human ear could ever hear. But the other kind of funny thing about that is in order to do it properly, you have to have capture equipment that doesn't change the signal. And we found that there are very few uh, audio capture cards that give you a true one, to, as close to one-to-one -one in the analog world as possible. We all know analog is impossible to do true one-to-one, -one, but um, there's very few cards. And on top of that, you could only use Linux mac or windows uh windows 7 you can't use uh, any of the modern versions of windows change the audio in a certain way where for archival stuff and for analyzing for video games it might be important for archiving your tapes it's totally different there's no possible way you're gonna have a vhs recording of a conversation like this that's gonna sound different based on that but it was a rabbit hole that was so fascinating to go down but how it applies to this is get yourself a motu m4 but, you know, the RCA inputs to the RCA outputs of your VHS player and you're most likely you shielded cables <laughs> and you'll most likely get um, as close to a representation as possible as one could expect realistically with analog signals. So no, but, but, but that's interesting, honestly, because I at least reading up like the audio side of VHS and, uh, and videotapes is I feel it's been sort of done not talked about uh, enough uh, on the on the forums and uh, internet sites at least from what i've seen because uh, yeah, there's at least a lot of like newer players don't do it very well so interesting yeah so that's when the quality of the player the quality of the audio side of the player and the audio circuitry would really matter so unlike the laser disc player where if your audio video output you could just turn that off if you're just recording it like you were saying a pal disc in an ntsc machine or something it's way more important to get a, a, a vhs player 
that actually is decent enough quality, at least on the audio side, for this to happen. Well, well, well it's, just, it's in particular in, on, on the linear linear order track. The hi-fi is pretty decent, no matter what it seems. But the, well, the, there can be differences there as well with the tracking. But I, I noticed that linear audio, at least on some many of the newer, like the 2000 stacks, is kind of not great, and and the, it, there is also issues with calibration and alignment. I, I guess the big problem with the VHS tapes is, especially with home movies, is is like you can't calibrate to to factory spec because the home movies aren't going to be factory spec. So you have to cal- calibrate to the home movies to get them correct. Yeah, yeah, that's funny. So when you're um, so when people are doing this now, uh, somebody was telling me uh, uh, somebody I follow on social media, Krista was saying that they were using a um, I think it was RF actually, but the whole point of it was that it adds a time code to it, uh, so that when you use it in conjunction with the Doomsday Kit, uh, the audio quality. The quality, in my opinion, might not even matter at all. It's just the point of getting the audio perfectly synced with the video. And maybe at the same time you use an MD Fourier approved uh, interface and then just replace the audio track in post. Uh, but at least you have it synced. At least you could just very easily look at it, look at the waveform and align it up perfectly. And yeah. there you go. Is that how most people would be would be doing this now with VHS? I don't. I don't know if if everyone does that that yet, but it's that's also an option. Like you, you with the with those um, if you're using that like capture card with with a modified driver, you can sort of capture the audio at the same time. It's not perfectly synced, but it's sort of close, so you can sort of get sort of synced to a degree. I mean, I, I can actually talk a little bit more about that. I mean, it, like, I, I haven't worked on the VHS side, so. <laughs> I'm, I'm lazy I, I want to hear every word you have to say, but I just want to throw this quick one out there. If there is no permanent solution, you could just use any piece of crap capture card to also, as you're playing the tape, get just a really low quality crap version of the capture. But yeah, that's that's uh, the video up with both of them. So yeah, that's what's. That's what people are doing generally, like okay. doing a normal capture and syncing the audio that way. Yeah. But okay. when, when when you look at sampling theorem, when you when you look at the way that sampling works, I mean, the the reason why there are problems on the VHS side is because no one like me has come along and made a a, a good capture system dedicated for VHS yet. But when when you sample something from the analog domain into the digital domain, you're you're not really you're capturing an average over time. Sample rate is actually a window that's sliding along. You have a window and the signal moves in that window. And you actually, depending on the speed of your sampling, you capture an average of the signal over that window in each sampling window. So one of the problems that you come across if you're really, really, you know, you want to look at with a fine tooth comb and what's going on, when you capture the stuff that's coming off a VHS tape and you've got, say, three different RF outputs, you actually want the same sample clock running on all three capture streams because otherwise the averaging of what's coming off the tape is going to be slightly different. Probably makes no difference whatsoever, but what you could ideally use is something exactly the same as the Doomsday Duplicator, but with three ADCs all running off the same clock, and then you would actually get a perfect capture. And it just requires someone to come along and, and, and build a board that is I mean, the, the main issue is not designing a board. Anyone, anyone that's an electronics engineer can do that. 
The problem is doing it so it costs less than a family car. So the, <laughs> I mean, because you can buy a super expensive sampling system. So the, the, it has to be good and cheap, and that's a difficult engineering problem, of course. But that, that would be the ideal scenario is to, to build a doomsday duplicator with, with three channels that don't have to be sampling at the same speed, but they do have to be operating on the same sample clock, which is a different problem. So I, I, I can see in my head a design that would do it. I mean, it's an entirely solvable problem. It just requires someone with time and money to come along and solve that, plus a few VHS players to play with, of course. And this would essentially be a sandwich design like you showed, but with three in the middle, not just one then. Yeah, potentially. I mean, it, it can be any design you like. If you're, you're I mean, one board with three connectors yeah, yeah. would do it too. I was just trying to paint a visual picture for you know. The, the interesting thing is on on the on the doomsday duplicator, the sampling clock is actually generated by the FPGA. So the sampling clock is generated by the the FPGA and fed into the ADC. So actually stacking that up with more ADCs, you could still use the same basic design to do it, but you probably don't want to use the same ADC um, chip for each channel because it's too expensive. I mean, that, that's the most expensive chip on that little board is the actual ADC itself. And if audio... What does that chip go for? Just the chip? Not, uh, not even... It's, it's not that much, actually. But I mean, the, the problem is, is that every dollar that you put into a PCB adds up in the end of the day. Then you've got to make a little bit of money on top. And it's like... Right, yeah. you, you, the, the other trouble is, is that as a hardware developer, you have to buy... 20 or 30 of those chips as you iterate through the development. So it's very expensive to develop as well because you have literally a hundred times the cost of a board every time you go through a, a cycle. So, I mean, all, all I'm saying is that it's not based on the existing duplicator design. It's not rocket science to get from there to something that's more suitable for VHS. It just requires someone to come along and do it. It's a problem we've solved on the Laserdisc side, but is yet to be solved on the, on the VHS fork side. And the the end result would just be better quality hi-fi audio and the potential for better for improved quality on just standard left and right analog audio. Yeah, and and less risk in capture as well. I mean, if you've got a disc, if you've got a disc, if you've got a tape that's uh, you you know every time you you rub that tape along the head, you're you're pulling off the ferrous material. So I mean, right. you you want to do it in one go and be sure that it works. Just like I mean, I mean, you can still do it in one go if you you can run a conventional capture and the rf capture at the same time still but yeah it's it's still uh it still would be much less much less clunky if you could do everything in one with one device yeah. instead of having to sync up i want to put this into perspective for people who are listening though because you know what what we're talking about now you kind of think back to how many times you may have watched a tape as a kid and oh yeah it really wore out when i was doing this live stream i used a brand new vhs tape that had never been opened before i had opened it a week before and used it to do a crt test experiment i had rewatched the beginning part once to put a funny thing up on social media and that's it twice and when we did this stream we played it 10 times maybe 15 tops including the first two i just said and number 15 let's just say was definitely a step down in quality than number two the first recording and it wasn't like oh well this tape's garbage but it was still when you sat them when i did a, a comparison pile up afterwards where you had all of the captures on the same screen at once it was very easy to tell which was the first capture and which was the last you know once again scaled to 4k side by side but it, so that's something that is a problem and that's another reason why i want to 
beat a lot of this stuff to death because you know this is the dumbest story ever but there was one tape that we had as a kid where my dad made some dumb dad joke that wasn't even that funny but that was a memory that has been burned into my brain forever and when i found those tapes i had forgotten that, that we had been recording it was on a ferris wheel i was like oh that's awesome and i got it to record and i realized that i had the wrong setting on the crappy capture card i was using anyway rewound it and the tape broke so the no. only thing i have of that stupid useless memory is a low quality capture so i just i wanted to take a moment or two to, to beat this to death in that trying to get this thing captured in as few passes if not one pass as possible is absolutely imperative not just for archival stuff that movie studios might have where they got to bake the tape first but for your own memories that are important to you so yeah, if it sounds like we're being extra critical and over the top about this, we are, but for the correct reasons. So, But I, I think there's an important thing in this, though, Bob, which is that the, the LD Decode project, you have to kind of separate these apart. The LD Decode project is a solved problem, which we are, uh, or I should say Chad maybe, is is working on, on getting better. It's great, and it's just getting more great. But the, the improvements are incremental it's it's we're, we're not it's not an evolution or a revolution or anything like that you know it's getting a little bit better a little bit faster vhs to code is still a project under development this is not a finished product that you're looking at it, it's a fork of ld to code so it's using the same improvements as chad's making but what Irvid is bringing to the party is is lots and lots of development but it's by no means like a finished capture and preservation solution like ld to code so we're kind of talking about two projects that are linked, but they're not at the same stage, which is why I say it would be great if someone would come along and make a better capture system because VHS decode is immature where LD decode is mature. And that's an important difference. So we're talking about a, a, a snapshot of a project right now. VHS decode has the, has the potential to be every bit as good as LD decode as a, as a preservation system. It's not at the moment because it needs more development, but that's, that's projects. That's what we're talking about. So we, we are in the same talk here, if you like, talking about two projects on two different levels, even though they're linked together. So I think all the things that you're saying about VHS Decode and, and, and Irvid's kind of view of it is a project under development right now. We, we need more people to come along and help with it. And then yes. it's, it's... Yeah, that's true. Yeah. I think it's also important to, 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 to remember that these things, well, both, both projects... Uh, it's it i mean it's it's they are like community projects it's not like commercial it's not a commercial product that someone is selling so if there's something missing or if, if this part of it is not working or something it's because it's not been done or it's not because yeah so some people are sometimes treating it as as, as it's some commercial project that's missing a feature or it's bad or trying to compare it to commercial solutions so yeah both both ld decode and vhs decode are worth every penny you pay for it yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um so uh i'm sure we're gonna have a lot more questions on this but basically to wind down find yourself the if you want vhs find yourself the correct player understand that it's a work in progress project and you'll probably be upgrading and changing things as you go and a good way to do this might be to use a good quality audio device like the Motu and even a garbage crappy USB capture card for the video so that after you run LD Decode, you could sync everything together very easily. 
Um, it's probably the easiest way to go about doing it. As long as the video works, that's all that matters. But now, Chad, I want to, I want you to talk about what LD the code does, how it does it with VHS and add whatever else you feel like. Well, the 50,000 feet view is you take RF files and then you do like a series of steps. It's all documented on the wiki. Like you have to TBC it, then color convert it, then decode the audio, then one FFmpeg or favorite tool to make a nice MP4 of it. You can script much of that. Okay. Um, but the when you're doing this with VHS, um, you know, you're reading the signal and I, basically what you're doing is trying to extrapolate video information from that, correct? Yeah, so you basically, what LD Decode does and VHS Decode too, I haven't actually done any work on the VHS yet. I've always been meaning to, I just haven't done it. Sorry. Mm-hmm. But it's the same software, Yeah, right? it's the same it's a fork of the same software, yeah. Um, and so you end up with a 480i 4x3 file, right? Yeah. Uh, and so that you have all the digital information on that, and then you could go from, people could take that from there. Um, so what, uh, I guess the there's the couple of first questions are, for people doing the VHS side of things, it's still a new project. So just running it through, everything should be pretty straightforward. But if somebody had listened to the previous interview and they built themselves a doomsday duplicator and they had ripped a laser disc, I ripped, and that's an oversimplification, mm-hmm. but it's going to be easier to say that than anything else. And then um, used your software then, would you actually recommend rerunning that on the original file today based on all the updates from the past five years? <laughs> yes, that's a Absolutely. big yes. Okay. <laughs> uh, so what were some of the changes and improvements that you had made? Well, we've had some video decoding improvements. It now can decode the digital audio tracks. Not perfectly. There are some errors, but it knows where the errors are, and usually it pans them out. So it still sounds really good. It's just not perfect yet. Okay. But you get a good sound and I think the picture quality's improved too some since well almost certainly since 2018 there's been a lot of work since then I was looking at the change logs and going wow I didn't know there I forgot there was that much <laughs> yeah so um from then though um what codec is it stored in codec bitrate I mean are you essentially just matching what what a uh, standard 480i broadcast signal would be. I'm very curious about that side of things as well. Because choosing a codec, if you don't, if you're not an expert in this, and you step into, all right, well, what codec do I use? That is a, a confusing rabbit hole just in itself. Usually, MPEG 4H264 works well. Once you get it to FFmpeg, it's really not my problem anymore. What you do with it, <laughs> you can use any encoding codec. FFmpeg has. And um, is there one, because, you know, when you're talking about using compression codecs, right? If you have a, a fully uncompressed 480i mm-hmm. file that's a half hour long, that's, you know, gigs of info. So you have to use some kind of compression. But coming from the, the video game world, if you have a perfect recreation, uh, you know, a lossless codec of an older video game and you compress it, you don't, you don't just lose information. It it starts to destroy some of the blocky images that old video games have when you play them. So is it as strict with video content 
um, you know, even if you think of things like anime and cartoons, do you really start to see a huge difference in quality based on codec and compression or just using, you know, can you talk a little bit about that, I guess, so people could understand where to go when they start using it? Well, you want to use a color space that preserves all the vertical information because MPEG combines the color data from two lines. And with Laserdisc, each line has unique color data. So you mm -hmm. definitely want to keep all of that. I, I think I can probably add something to that as well, because I mean, the, 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 the LD decode process is a little different from traditional capture mm -hmm. in that on, on the Laserdisc itself, once you've done the demodulation stage, you end up with not frames, you end up with fields. So it's an analog picture where you have a field and then another field interlaces and then another field. So the picture is actually moving at, let's say it's PAL and it's 25 frames per second. The picture is actually moving at 50 frames a second because every field updates the, the frame. So you have a lot of different things that you have to consider. If you look at a doomsday disk, a doomsday disk is about 20,000 still photographs. And if there's one thing that the codecs don't do very well for video is when you have stills on each frame and there's no progression from frame to frame because it's just a picture. I mean, the picture, the, the, the frame you're looking at has no relation to the next frame. So the LD decode process in itself is actually pulling that raw data off. In, in the pipeline of LD decode, it is raw RGB data effectively. We, we, we don't do anything with it codec-wise. We don't compress it. We just analyze the signal and then we produce a line and we, we put a dot clock against it and we pull that as pixel information at a resolution that's high enough that you, you won't lose anything. And then depending on the actual content, whether it came from, sometimes they were mastered from films, sometimes they were mastered from tapes, sometimes it's primarily still frame information that you're getting from it. All of these things change how you would want to represent that on an MPEG, uh, like an MP4. So. Mm. If you take Doomsday as an example, you can't run Doomsday through your typical codec because it will destroy every single still frame on the disk. It will be useless. You have to have something that can compress, but it has to be frame-to-frame -frame compression. It can't have this kind of like, you know, a lot of these, these codecs use multi-frame, look at what changed, and then compress the bit that didn't change. So you, you actually have to be quite aware of the content. But the, the thing that Chad kind of alluded to there is that it's outside of the LD decode problem domain. LD decode produces a raw, a massive raw RGB file with no compression. It doesn't try to do anything clever because Chad and I are not experts at codecs. What you can then do is you can take a traditional tool like uh, FFmpeg and then decide based on the video content what you want to do with it or even don't compress it at all. I mean, you, you can use our LD Analyze application to look at the raw information. So the type of codec that you use depends an awful lot on the source that was used to master the, the disk in the first place. If it was film, if it was tape, then uh, different things have different effects. How it was kind of like, you know, if it was telecene, for example, there, there are a lot of things that can change the, the feel of it when you put it onto a monitor. Because when you put it into an MPEG-4, what you're actually doing is you're, you're framing up the video. And the original video on the Laserdisc is not framed, it's filled. So you already have to make a kind of a, a cutthroat decision on how you interpret those fields into frames. It's the first thing you have to decide, like how it's interlaced and those sorts of things. And 
Sometimes you can get away with sort of doing it at 25 frames per second in, in the MP4. Sometimes you have to run at 50 because you lose the feeling of interlacing otherwise that was in the video. It's quite, it's quite a personal taste thing as well. It's not necessarily tech that we're talking about here. So you actually, I mean, we, we have some guys in, in the project. There's one guy I'm thinking of, Stephen from the BBC, who is an absolute expert in this stuff. So if you want some help, then we have people on our Discord server that know I mean, know so much about this subject is ridiculous. So, but it really does depend on the original source material, what you do with it, because you you are always interpreting it into something a computer can understand. Computers don't do original analog uh, video; they just they just don't. The monitors won't. The computers can't. You're always making a compromise. So that's why I mean, Chad and I had this discussion right at the beginning of the project that we only focus on our problem domain. And our problem domain finishes at the point where we have the raw data, the, the digital RGB, I think it's recorded in some, is it 12-bit or 16-bit? 16 16-bit 16 um, per channel, I that's think. That's right, 16, 16, 16. So we, 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 we go way over what, what would ever be necessary or you could represent in, in detail on a disk and dump that out. And then you suck that into FFmpeg, and then we have on the wiki some kind of guides that show does your video look like this? Try using these particular settings. If it's interlaced material, you can try these settings, but it's, it is suggestions. But there's there's a lot of material on the wiki that kind of other people that are good at this stuff, it's not really me and I don't think it's Chad, that it, it, have actually written and showed like examples of what it looks like and what you get out of it and how you use FFmpeg to, to do that processing. Yeah, I think that would be um, a really great follow-up interview uh, just to, to go through the compression algorithms and stuff like that as well, because even if you don't have VHS, if you have Super 8 or any of the other tape formats and you have your original player, and what if you do hunt down a really good, you know, what used to be a $2,000 480i analog capture card, you can get it for a couple hundred bucks now. How, how would you even go from there if you want to make sure this is archival? Because then yeah, you could go and do an uncompressed or, or even a lossless capture, but then what do you go from there? So I think that would be an excellent follow-up interview with anybody that you would suggest. Uh, you said Stephen from BBC is probably the person to talk to you about he'll, that. He'll kill me for mentioning him out loud, but he's a great guy. But, um, Sorry, Stephen. Hope to meet you soon. <laughs> so, I mean, the thing to remember there, though, is that the, the, the reason for doing the capture process that we have is that you capture the raw information from the tape or the disc. So everything that comes afterwards is not important. It's, it's really important from the perspective of being able to watch it. From, from right. a process perspective, who cares what happens next? Maybe you do it now. I mean, this is more true with the Laserdisc capture right now than the VHS. But if you capture a Laserdisc right now and, and LD decode completely messes it up, who cares? In, in a year's time, it will probably do it perfectly because the, the capture that you get, and the, the beauty of an RF capture is that you capture what's on the media itself. Mm. And then the process is something that you can modify. So if you capture something and it doesn't decode very well, well, that's a shame, but you can always work on the software and make it better. The, the original capture that you have doesn't get any worse. And I think on the VHS side, once we get this kind of multi-channel capture that we're talking about, the same will be true. You'll be able to capture a tape. And then even if the, the VHS decode software doesn't decode it very well, it doesn't matter because you've got a capture. And that's the difference with this process versus traditional capture systems. Because with a traditional capture system, you capture an interpretation of the material that's on the, on the original media. And once you've done that, you're stuck with however that was interpreted. Where with the LD Decode project, 
we don't interpret anything. We just capture the, the original information on the disk. And then what happens afterwards is a repeatable and changeable process. And it's, it's quite an important distinction. Yeah, and I think that's really the focus here. And I think getting that original, you know, the original rip uh, saved to your hard drive, to your, you know, uh, to your server, whatever you've got, and leaving that there for things that are very important to you is the is the key. Um, And, you know, I've also even messed with uh, taking, you know, lossless or very low compression 480i stuff and using software to up up upscale and deinterlace that to 4k and, and multiple different methods versus running it through the RetroTINK 4k or even the RetroTINK 5x adding crt filters and to be honest doing it in real time was really close if not sometimes better sometimes you get a little haloing around people's faces with some of the upscaling algorithms so keeping it in 480i and using whatever scalar box you currently have to bring it up to speed is certainly something that that it will be probably the best for people. I did an interview a while back with somebody who made software that just kind of interfaces with a lot of the FFmpeg. Uh, it's basically, a, I don't want to in, uh, insult Simon, but it's basically a GUI for all of that command line stuff. It just, it's a bit more than that. So if your goal is to put something up on YouTube, you're going to probably want to put that in 720 or 1080. So pre-scaling, it's fine. But this all goes back to, that's not what I would have told you 10 years ago. That's definitely not what I'm going to tell you 10 years from now. And as long as you have that original archive, it doesn't matter. But people do definitely need clear next steps because after investing the time and the money to do all this, they actually want to show people their videos. And if it looks just as bad as if they used that crappy capture card that I used, it's pointless, right? So that is definitely something I need to do for a follow-up. I would would argue with the expression pointless. I mean, if I capture a LaserDisc um, right now using the Doomsday Duplicator and Chad's software makes a terrible attempt at, you know, God God forbid, makes a terrible attempt at decoding it, it's not pointless because I I have a copy of the LaserDisc. I mean, this, this is the big difference between RF capture and all other methods is that I still have a preserved copy. LD Decode has got nothing to do with preservation. LD Decode is, and I'm, I'm not insulting Chad here, but this is like, look at it physically. The LD Decode does not preserve anything. The only thing it does is take a preserved copy of something and turn it back into something that's useful. But mm. that's not preservation. Preservation is the, the initial image of the disk. And it's the same when you look at VHS tapes. If you capture a, a, an RF copy of the, the tape, what the heads inside the player see, then you have preserved it. What happens next is just convenience to emulate it, to play it back, to watch it, to you know, put it on your 4K TV or whatever. None of that is preservation. That is just a process that makes it useful. But usefulness is not the same as preservation. Now, I do have a disclaimer to make because a lot of the, the time people come up to me with discs that don't decode right, it's because there's an actual skip in the playback. <laughs> and that Fair. is in the RF file and can't be worked around. That's true, unless you have another another copy from the same master, in which case you can stack them. But the thing is, is that if the playback skipped, you still have a preserved copy of what the player saw at that point yeah. in time. This is why you calibrate players to try to get around it. And we can process out the skips by doing various sorts of things. But, I mean, it is important. The, the, the chicken and the egg when we, when we started this project was that I had a capture system that I, pre- I was pretty sure would, was preserving laser discs. But as Chad rightly points out, 
you have to test that theory. I mean, unless you can decode that stuff into something usable, how do you know that the original capture was good? How do you know there's no skips in it, for example? So it does play a part in preservation, but LD Decode acts as a test of the preserved copy in, in that case. So I capture something, then I decode it to make sure that the capture was good. But the decoding is not the preservation. It's a separate action. And it's the same with the VHS tapes. You, you have to kind of, you have to step back from this traditional way of like, you know, I play the tape, I capture what comes out the RCAs, because that is not what is happening here. The, the only point of preservation is when you capture the raw RF information coming off that medium. Once you have that, you have it. It's totally useless, but you have a copy of the tape. It's only then when you decode it that you have to make all of these other decisions, which before you had to make at the same time that you were capturing. You have to make a decision on how you, you mangled and effectively destroyed the original information because that's what you're doing. When you, when you process it in an analog chain, with all the best equipment in the world, you are destroying the information that was on that disk in one way or another. Where with the LD decode process, you capture and then you run it through LD decode and you can make all the decisions about how you, how you mangle and destroy it into something useful later on. But that's... That's what you're doing. I mean, whatever you do to an original analog source will make it worse. That's just mathematics. I mean, right. <laughs> the universe says it's, it's the laws of physics, Scotty, that if you run through <laughs> you're making it worse. So, And that's why I was talking earlier on about, like, the ultimate thing with a VHS capture would be to capture all of the information in different sampling chains, if you like, that are all synchronized together, because then you have an exact copy of the original source which you can then later on decode. It's, it's, not, it's not the same problem domain as the other ways of getting video, you know, of capturing video. It doesn't work the same way. It, and it is, I mean, to be kind of arrogant about it, it's better. It's better because once you've captured it, you have a preserved copy, everything else is unimportant. It's just convenient. And that convenient... Yeah, I think that's something most people can visualize because even in the music world, right? How many, how many bands who have recorded albums had to record it 50 times because the setting on their amp wasn't right. Whereas now you plug your guitar into a really good quality interface, you record everything clean, and then you just reamp that. So you don't exactly. have sounds, you already got your perfect performance. So you, yeah. it's, I think it's very easy to visualize. Well, I always go to music because I'm a wannabe musician. It's, it's you know, there's a million different things that you could, uh, um, analogies you could put. So yeah, that's, that's totally right. Um, yeah, so I mean, it, as long as uh... Is, uh, one, one more, one quick second though, and I'm sorry to cut you off again. But if anybody does have the ability to work on this project, the best place to do this would be to go into your Discord and say, "Hey, you know, where could I get one of these? Or I already have one of these. Let me add on to it. I already have the knowledge of decoding RF. Let's." So it's really just focused on your Discord and, and getting in touch with people um, there who are working on it, right? Yeah, and we, we have extensive wikis as well. I mean, Chad, Chad will say about my, my <laughs> anal behavior when it comes to documenting things. Like, everything is documented. There are procedures for everything. Everything is written down. Whatever you're interested in, you can pick it up on the wiki, and you can read a lot of information about it. And, and if you think the wiki is bad, we want to hear that too, because the wiki should not be bad. The wiki should be a singular source of information for the VHS decode side, the LD decode side, the tool chains, everything is described in, in great detail. And that means if you want to actually help developing it, you can look at that part of the wiki. If you want help on how to get going, get the system set up and get decoding, there's another part of the wiki that's been written by people that are good at this stuff that guide you through that stuff. So we, we have made a lot of effort in the project to make sure that, that anyone that wants to join in, of course, you can come to the Discord server and ask us. 
Um, but the first step will be we will point you straight back to the, the, the wiki and say, have you read these pages? Because most of the information is already there to get you going. So I think we're both VHS Decode and LD Decode is in a really good place. If you have the skill and you have the time and the want, you know, then by all means come and join in. Many people already have. And we welcome you, even if you, you, you're an expert domain in, I don't know, PAL video, for example, like my friend Stephen that I was mentioning, or, you know, we, we have Ian in the project who runs around the UK finding laser discs. Like he has a boot of his car with a portable capture system that will run around to museums and capture rare things. We, we have all of these people that are just enthusiastic. And we also have a whole ton of people that do anime, and they're only interested in decoding and getting the best video they can. They're testers. I mean, that's what they are. They, they test and feedback bugs. So everybody is useful to the project, whether you're interested in tapes or discs or whatever. You know, It's an open source project. We're not going to pay you. We expect you just to work for free like the rest of us. <laughs> we'll love you for it. <laughs> and a couple of my card, a hardware idea is it, I need to study the feasibility of this, but the BeagleBone AI64, I believe, has enough high-speed outputs and I believe the crew, even though it's not officially supported by the chip, it does work. I believe it's got the bandwidth in and out to do multi-channel capture. And that's about a $175 board. That's not bad. Yeah. So we cut you off before, Oivan. Uh, I, I apologize. We just uh, I wanted to make sure to get that info out because I want to send people to the correct place. But uh, could you jump back in? I'm sorry about that. Yeah, I kind of lost what I was going to say. So oh, I'm sorry. Going. My fault. My big mouth. Ugh. Um, so I guess as we're winding this down, um, you know, this was uh, awesome to to reconnect with you. It was very nice to meet you, of course. But is there anything else that we haven't talked about that you think people should know about the project going into it or anything that you just want to, that you're proud of, that you want to promote about it? Just anything that I've uh, forgotten to bring up that that you just want people to hear? Well, I want to thank Olvin for digging in and understanding the code enough to write the VHS version and give me some really helpful tips. Like a lot of the recent performance optimizations are from ideas you had. Okay, um, get rid of get rid of the multiprocessing. Go to thirty-two bit processing. Those really helped. Hmm, thanks. But yeah, and from my side, I mean, I probably mentioned this early on, but LD Decode and Doomsday 86 are not the same project, no matter how close we seem to each other. <laughs> we love each other dearly, <laughs> but um, we move in, in, in different directions with different aims. I mean, Doomsday 86 is aimed at preserving the, the BBC Doomsday system. And my task right now is, is ongoing to build uh, emulation for the Laserdisc systems that we're running in the background so that we can... The, the aim of the project is to bring um, these high-quality copies of the Laserdisc and, and emulated doomsday systems to the museums, in the, especially in the UK, so that the public that, that were involved, the one and a half million school children that were involved in producing the doomsday discs will have access to them again. And it's an important historical record. And I, I kind of want to shout out a little bit to the National Museum of Computing in Bletchley Park, which is... If you're ever in the UK or you're in the UK and you haven't been there, then you've missed an amazing place to be. And the same for the Centre for Computing History in Cambridge. Both of those uh, museums are just, they're fantastic places. Whether you just like playing video games or you want to have a play with a real doomsday system, they're, they're fantastic places to be. Yeah, and, and didn't uh, the source, BCPL source card tune up for the doomsday system? 
sorry, I just say again, the original Chad? BCPL source code turn up at least. Yeah, we, we, we actually have the we have the original source code. We we found um, a development machine that was used by Logica when they were developing the original system and managed to recover the BCPL source code for Doomsday as well. So we actually have pretty much everything preserved that you could possibly imagine about Doomsday. But the, the museums particularly have been helpful with allowing the, these loony hobbyists that are running around with their laserdisc players to come along and take copies of things. Um, and of course, you know, we, we, we like to work with museums, especially because preservation is important. So, I mean, from my perspective as well, I, I know there are things like the, the uh, Apple um, discs as well, the Apple, Apple visual multimedia discs that are around. I mean, if anyone is interested in, in copies of those or, want, or has access to the systems or has uh, educational laser disc systems that they want to talk about or preserve, then you're welcome to contact us as well. I mean, it's, a, it's an angle that, that I'm very passionate about. So, I mean, there's a lot going on. Hopefully, Doomsday 86 will continue for quite some time and uh, <laughs> sort of using these Laserdisc images. I mean, there's also the potential that we'll use the same Laserdisc emulation that I'm developing for Doomsday for Laserdisc games, for example. So, I mean, all of these are quite there's special problem domains that I'm dealing with. But the beauty of open source is always that whatever you produce, you, no one has to do the work again. It can be reused in many different ways. I think I think it's already some of the discs has already made its way into to some emulators. Yeah, Mame especially they're yeah. they're already there. You can play Time Traveler. I think was the first one to get emulated, and actually that was uh, one of the Mame devs. Um, I think his online name is Moodly Guy. He's an American guy that happens to actually live in Sweden, just down the road from me. So <laughs> that was that was an easy piece of collaboration. But we are capturing and supplying images into the main project as well to to produce you know the best laser disc emulation possible in in main. So I mean there's a lot of things going on, and all of these projects are open source, not for profit. If anyone wants to help, for the love of God, come and come and raise your head above the parapets. We, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, and we've covered those Laserdisc games on RetroRGB, and uh, we we're going to continue to, obviously. Um, the last time we spoke, though, you mentioned that there was potential for using the system to also play back the files with the same functionality as the original Laserdisc, um, Laserdisc player. Is that something that had ever been completed, or is that just still on the back burner because it's way less important? The, the, I mean, again, this goes back to the kind of like what is preservation and what is just making the images useful. This, this is on the side of making those images useful. So one of the plans that I have for um, the Doomsday project specifically is to produce a Laserdisc player emulator that you can connect to an original BBC master, uh, to an original CRT, and it will do all the tricks that the Laserdisc player was doing. And... It's actually more complicated than it sounds because, of course, the, the VP415 did gen locking and video mixing. So it would take the signals from the Laserdisc. It, it actually synchronized the Laserdisc spin, the, the rotational speed of the Laserdisc, to the output of the computer, which was very unusual. So that's how it actually did the gen locking. It would actually slow down or speed up the disc depending on the computer's output and then overlay the signal onto it so that you could display the maps and the pictures and the, and the text from the computer. So one of my aims is to try to produce an open source system that can replicate those sorts of tricks cheaply and in the digital domain. This goes back to cheap and good. It's kind of difficult to achieve. It's easy to do if you want to throw a lot of money at it. It's a little bit more difficult if your target is 100 quid. So 
but it's kind of you know or 150 dollars i mean it's so that is something i'm actively working on right now i have in, in in the other room a big pile of fpgas pumping through video signals from our raspberry pis and all sorts of things trying to find a way of solving that problem so i mean and again that's an open source project and it's applicable to arcade systems too i mean if you've got there are already like the Daphne Daphne emulator, I believe it is, yeah. from Matt Owen, who's another contributor to the LD Decode project. I mean, but there are other Laserdisc systems and other Laserdisc games and other educational systems and all sorts of things out there that can benefit from that. So it, it's absolutely part of the aim of Doomsday 86 to produce some form of Laserdisc emulation system. Mm. I mean, that, that ties into another uh, aspect I, I just wanted to briefly touch on as well. Uh, I mean, one, one of the things that uh, both LE Decode Earl and VHS Decode made and doing RF capture this way makes easier compared to capturing conventionally is, is uh, sort of looking at uh, the non-visible parts of the video signal. So, so in, 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 I guess you probably know a bit about this, but in in an analog video signal, you have the the uh, the sort of blanking parts of the signal, where when the, which is used to to uh, bring the the part in the what's it called. The electron beam back to the, the raster yeah, yeah, corner, yeah. yeah, the raster scanning, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so typically, typically, um, like it, it was often used to put uh, various other bits of information, like uh, teletext in in Europe, particularly, and I, I know the laser discs often have a bunch of other data as well. So uh, I think the Domesday discs uh, use that uh, a fair bit, like as well. Yeah, most laser discs have test well. signals that are really good for calibrating and seeing the quality of the disc. Hmm. Yeah, and, and and BBC Garden Birds actually has teletext on the laser disc too. So that there's a lot of data that's in between the video on all of these that actually the the capture system captures, which traditional capture systems do not. So there, there's the, the good thing, it goes back to the RF capture. RF capture just captures everything the laser sees. Whether, whether LD decode understands it or not, or VHS decode understands it or not, it's captured. And that I mean, you, you can you can capture to some extent the, the, this area with a normal capture card, but it's usually kind of clunky to do. And it doesn't capture in, it in the same stream as the normal video signal. So it's, yeah. I just realized you could do some interesting spy data transmission stuff using bands of RF. Like the CIA or somebody could have put extra data on a videotape that you could have a plumb ordinary looking VCR. You'd have to open it up and plug a serial port in, and then you could put data on the tape, and it would just look like any other tape. Uh, I mean, we've already seen so a bunch of like uh, branding, or, or not brands, but there's like text in the. VBIR area that you wouldn't see normally on on a bunch of commercial tapes, like, and it's all and it's all, that's also where they put like the copy protection signals, which is interesting. <laughs> In it, yeah, I mean it's the same thing on even on the Doomsday discs. If you look at the Philips user code that's on the discs, the way the system identifies what disc is currently in there is that in the lead-in information, which is before the real video, 
there's actually a user code burnt onto the disk and it's 1066 on one side of the disk, which was the year of the Norman invasion that caused uh, the doomsday project originally in the, <laughs> in the 10th century, uh, the 11th century. And then on the other side of this, it's 1986, which was the year the BBC produced it. So, I mean, it's not useful, but it is fun. And that stuff has to be preserved as well. It's part of the original fabric of, of that material. I mean, there's a, there's a different project that's sort of tangentially related, which... Uh, uh... Which there's a guy that's or a different open source project that uh, does uh, sort of teletext recovery from yeah. uh, VHS tapes. So they 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 do it with more conventional capture methods, but they've also tested it a bit with uh, with uh, RF capture as well, which is interesting. Hmm. So that's sort of reading that sort of data, and, and even though like from a from like a normal teletext decoder can't fully capture or decode the teletext signal from a, a VHS tape, well, but, but uh, by using various uh, filtering and, and tricks, they, they managed to, to sort of, by using a long recording, they can sort of get a full uh, teletext, uh, I don't know what you call it, uh, set from, uh, from the recordings, which is kind of cool. And just to sort of like, just if I was to dream into the future of, of this style of capture as well, just to sort of give you an idea of what goes on in my probably quite strange head. But I mean, RF capture too, because you're not because you're not playing the source back in real time. You you don't need to play the source back in real time to do RF capture. But actually, the slower you play something, the lower the frequencies become. Funnily enough, a bit like if you you know play a forty five record on thirty three. Maybe that shows my age, but you know what I mean. You, you, when you slow, when when you play something slower, the frequencies become lower. So actually, in, in my my strange brain, I mean, especially with things like VHS um, players and those sorts of things, even with laserdiscs, I mean, in, in the future there will be the ability to three D print these things and and build custom players. I mean, if you imagine printing a transport for a VHS player that has very accurate stepper motor control. You could actually then play the tape at a very controlled lower speed and that would drop all the frequencies and would mean that it would be easier and cheaper to capture in high quality because if you drop the frequencies you drop the sampling rate requirements so i mean with that and laser discs and cds and all those sorts of things there is the potential in the future with this style of capture to produce custom players that run those tapes not in real time and if you do that you can actually, without spending any money, get get better quality capture for less cash, basically. So I, I think there's there's a lot of interesting science, if you like, that, that, that floats around these ideas of doing RF captures. I actually so that there was some uh, firm that was trying the opposite uh, and playing tapes faster, but uh, I think they gave up on it, and they're they're now making like this. Uh, they ended up just making this uh, composite thingy that they're selling to digitizing firms. But yeah, sure. Hmm. Um, so I just completely forgot what I was going to say. I'm sorry. Uh, oh wait, yes, Simon. Last time we talked, you said that uh, theoretically speaking, somebody could come up with a scanner someday, like a paper scanner that could actually scan a laser disc and get the same amount of detail. Yep. Um, is that, is, I mean, I'm, you, I think you said something like, uh, 
10 years before that technology would be feasible but that was just a guess like just kind of pontificating is that grown since the past five years i think i mean like everybody tells you things that can't be done i mean the, the, whenever you come up with an idea there's a thousand people that will tell you why it's a stupid idea and it takes a special sort of person to, to push through stupid ideas because some stupid ideas turn out not to be stupid so i mean i, I actually have a couple of theories one one on the laser disc side that we spoke about last time which is if you have a camera that's accurate enough or a scanning electron microscope or whatever it is, I mean, you can take a picture of a disc. And if you have a picture of a disc so that you can see the pits, I mean, all the the uh, doomsday duplicator is doing at the moment is it, it takes a linear photo of the track. That's really what it is. It's optical information. And there's nothing to stop you from capturing that disc all at once if you had a higher quality enough um, microscope or whatever you use to image it. But also, interestingly, I mean, one of the big issues with VHS capture or tape capture in general is you have to touch the tape. But magnetic flux, I mean, it doesn't require touch. You, you can have an accurate enough sensor that floats above the tape, being able to pick it up without touching it. I mean, you could even imagine systems where the head kind of shakes up and down and you interpolate the, the, the flux information to increase the resolution. A bit like if you have a picture and you shake it up and down, you can actually recreate the original image, even if you don't have a blurry thing to start with. All of this stuff is theoretically possible with magnetic flux. I mean, there are actually some images of uh, flux scans of magnetic tapes exactly. out there, but uh, probably extremely expensive equipment. <laughs> extremely, yeah. But, you know, duplicating a laser disc was, it was infinitely more expensive until Chad and I decided to make it cheap. Yeah. I mean, the, these uh, things just require they, they, they just require a happy happy idiot <laughs> with time and drive to get it done. But I, I think things like you know a, a low speed if you're moving the tape at quite low speed, for example, and you lower all the frequency requirements and you have more time, yeah, maybe you shake the, the the head up and down using fill, uh, Hall effect sensors. You could effectively build a, a VHS player that doesn't need to touch the tape. I mean, I mean, there was I saw some article about the Japanese firm that was built, or at least trying to build some sort of scanning thing for VHS tapes, but I don't know if it went anywhere. Those guys need to make money. That's the big difference. <laughs> when you don't, yeah, that's money, yeah, exactly. So you, you, I don't know if you, you can be a bit more crazy, but I mean, this this is just like like with all projects, dream dream big. Don't don't listen to the naysayers. I mean it. The great thing about open source is that you don't have to have a commercial product at the end of the day. You just have to have something that makes you happy. So, I mean, I mean, there is a, a commercial firm that does uh, RF capture of tapes. Although I think it's only better better cam tapes. I don't oh. think there's money in anything else. <laughs> but it, yeah, and not in a, a professional beta tapes. If anybody knows yeah. technology connections, that YouTube channel, he just did a video about the difference. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's not the ones you have in the home. It's uh, like the right. ones that news like you would use in the... Yeah, they started with the tape whatever. mechanism and made something entirely different for professional use. Mm. Like, I think yeah. the first yeah, you know, tapes it's funny, were the though, same, but um, then they went metal and all that. Yeah. I mean, it would take a big project, like, I mean, like Doomsday 86, it would take a huge project for a company to be able, or a country, to commission a player made to do that kind of scanning. Because that is that is way over what 
hobbyists could put together. And but Simon, obviously, that's not an insult towards your project. I'm just saying, you know, that is that is manufacturing every piece of equipment from scratch. So I, I almost think a homebrew hack solution, like grab these players, you know, pull the parts out of these. We're going to, you know, put them in our new device, but you're essentially using a lot of the, uh, I mean, it would, it would be, have to take some creative nerding to make that happen. Uh, but who knows? I mean, maybe this stuff, uh, archival stuff is going to become more important and maybe we'll see a company make them knowing that they're only going to sell a couple thousand. So they're going to be four or five grand each as opposed to a hundred bucks each. But, but one one thing I can, can kind of tell you though, Bob, is that, that you know, during the, the, the length of this interview, every laser disc I have in my house, and there's quite a few, they've all got worse. I mean, if I yeah. capture them at the start of this interview and I capture them now, they they will have degraded. So yeah. this was another discussion when we started LD Decode that, you know, using a laser disc player and, and even a fairly modern calibrated laser disc player is not necessarily the most optimal way of doing things, but it was the quickest, cheapest, fastest way that we could get to where we needed to do. And it actually turned out to work pretty well. But the thing is, is that with preservation, time is of the essence. I mean, usually we say time of the essence, but your source material is degrading all by itself. So, I mean, what we can do in the future is nice, and I think it's important to look at that and, and to work towards it. But it's also important to remember that, that all of these laser discs, all of these tapes, they're not ever going to be better than they are right in this moment, this second. So if you have the possibility to preserve them in the, in the best way possible, what we have now is, is the best thing you can do. Because, I mean, they're only going to get worse. And it's very true with these British laser discs like Doomsday, which are degrading like... The, the degrading rate, I mean, like I can see it now because we can we can continue to capture the same disc year after year and watch the increasing signal-to-noise ratios on the disc. They're, they're absolutely falling apart in front of our eyes. It's like so, that I mean, guy with Alzheimer's who was trying a self-picture himself every year. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's like it's analog tech. It's, it's physical things. They will get worse. So it is important for people to innovate and to look to the future and, and kind of dream big on these things. But it's also important for the rest of us to, to grab what we have and preserve this, this technology, preserve these discs, preserve this information. Because there are a lot of, I mean, like, I, I don't particularly care for Japanese anime myself. I've watched it. It's like, okay, it's nice. <laughs> but the, but again, it's it's a cultural thing. I mean, I understand, even though I, I don't really appreciate the, the, the media itself, I mean, I understand it's a cultural thing. You you have to preserve this stuff. It's important. It shows a way that people were thinking at a particular time and a, and a, a thing that they were doing. It's 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 art. It's important stuff. Another and it's the great, same. With, oh, sorry. No, Another go ahead. Another great Jeff. thing is that for anime laser discs that don't have any English on them, you can use Whisper or some of the other new stuff that's coming out to make English subtitles of any disc. Yeah. Mm. But it, as I say, all of this stuff is, it's, it's art, it's culture, it's important to preserve these things. I mean, because we don't know now what is going to be important in 100 years' time. We just don't. I mean, this yeah. is why Doomsday is, is so important to me, because the kids that were writing stuff then, they, they wrote about the, the local swimming pools and the Boy Scouts Club, and they weren't adults. They were kids that wrote stuff, and they wrote down some stuff that adults would have never have thought to record. And that makes right. it special and, and important. And all artifacts like, you know, art and, and culture and those sorts of things are important. Even if they're your, your home video of your wedding, there, there's something in there that's going to be useful in the future. 
Yeah, it's the same in the video game world too. It's yeah, just as important absolutely. to archive bad games as it was good games. Just for yes, all the reasons. Otherwise, how do you know the good games were good? <laughs> right. Yeah, I couldn't think of a better place to to end this. You know, it, it's a archiving is important, but it's all a ticking time bomb, and yeah. it's better to do it than not have done it at all. So, to, to your point, that that one low quality clip I have of me as a kid that I said the tape broke. I'm so glad that I at least have that low quality clip versus playing it back. And now there's no way to get it. So it's, you know, your point rings through completely. And I think um, anybody that has the ability to help out at all, your discord is definitely the place to go check the wiki first before asking any questions, but it's a friendly place. I've been there quite a bit and it's, um, you know, any way you could help, whether it's checking to see if the discs you have have already been archived um you know this any rare equipment or especially if you have the ability to help out on the vhs side uh, you know just go check out the wiki hang out participate and uh hopefully i'll eventually get my player and i'll be able to help on the laser disc side and i would love to get one on the vhs side on the you know pretty soon as well awesome all right. Well, yeah. thank thank all three of you so much. I really appreciate all your work as well as the time that you, that you've taken to do two of these interviews. Now, uh, you know, it's just it's awesome to get the word out, and I, I really hope in some small way I can help boost all the preservation efforts that you've all been putting into this stuff. No, I appreciate you and your your channel, and good luck with retro RGB. It's a, yeah, same love. Always fun. Thank yeah, you very thanks much. For, thanks for having us. All right. We'll see you soon.